Well, Happy New Year. We are uh, embarking on 2022. I told Jess yesterday, I thought we would be like flying in spaceships by now and have time travel by uh, 2022. And um, we're not quite there yet, but uh, our world seems to be moving at such a, a fast pace. And I'm thankful for just the consistency of being able to come Sunday after Sunday, gathering as the church uh, to worship. So um, praise the Lord for another opportunity to come uh, and gather together to sing these songs, to see one another's faces, to encourage each other in the Lord. Well, I don't know about you, um, but every start of a new year is time of reflection and a time of inventory, a time of goal setting, planning, uh, and all those things I think are pretty typical of the new year. I don't know what your resolutions look like if you make resolutions, but certainly, typically, um, people begin to start thinking about their health a little bit more, how they're going to change their diets, the exercise programs they're going to get on, the gyms that they're going to attend. In fact, I saw a guy at the gym the other day, and he said, hey, I'll see you in two weeks. I said, are you going on vacation? You can go visit family. He's like, no, I'm just not going to be here while all these people are on my machines. But he says, in two weeks, they'll be gone, and I'll come back, and things will be back to normal. We do do that. We, we come to the new year and we begin to think about things that need to change. Maybe it's how our time is spent. Maybe we need to watch less TV. We need to be in books more. Um, we certainly as a church want to be diligent and faithful to read the Bible together. And so Sam uh, put together our Bible in a year reading program. And uh, one of the ways to heighten that kind of accountability is Jess and I we began to record ourselves reading the Bible. Uh, so I'm reading out of the Legacy Standard. She's reading out of the NASB. And we want to leave a legacy for our kids. So we're going to try our very best to read through the entire Bible and record ourselves for our kids. So that when they go to bed, they're not listening to some random person reading the Bible, but they're listening to mom and dad. And uh, that, hopefully for us, is a way to stay consistent. Because we know that as the world goes, things get busy and it becomes harder and harder to be consistent. So a little extra accountability and feel free to check in on us and see how we're doing. But that is our hope. I wonder, though, as we're thinking about resolutions and the new year, if on that list of resolutions you have by health and getting better sleep and watching less TV and all these other things, if you have there risk-taking. I want to take more risk for the Lord, for the sake of the gospel, for gospel advancement. How many of you have sat down at the flip of the new year and said, you know what, I am determined, I am dedicated, I am resolved to take more risk for the Lord in 2022? And it might be, as you heard Nick mention this morning, that you might have to take more risk in 2022. Um, Dr. MacArthur sent out a message to all of those in the Master's Fellowship a few weeks ago, um, letting us know what's going on in Quebec, up in Canada. Um, our brother James Coates, he's a pastor, um, a grad of the Master's Seminary. Um, his church has been under fire. The church was closed down for a while. Uh, he was put in prison for opening his church and preaching the word. But beginning in January, um, people will begin to be put in prison because they are proclaiming the word. And they're proclaiming the word specifically as it relates to gender, sexuality, what God's word says about males and females. And any threats to um, what the world defines as male and female will be punishable by law. $1,000 to $6,000 fine and imprisonment. And so what they're saying is if you try this conversion therapy, in other words, if you tell someone, no, this is what God's word says, this is what he's established in his eternal word, and by the order of creation and nature, if you come out and say that in opposition to what they believe, then you can be put in prison or fined. And so just by way of solidarity, uh, in a few weeks here, I'm going to be preaching on sexuality in God's design for men and women. And up to this point, people won't like that, people won't agree with that, but there is no immediate threat of me being thrown into prison. It is true for our brothers and sisters in Canada, even as we speak. 
But I was super encouraged by uh, Aaron, that is his wife's post on Instagram. She said, we're not closing down this time and we're not going to be quiet. We're going to continue to preach God's uh, inerrant, infallible truth and come what may, but those are risk takers. Those are people who are serious about the gospel. Those are people who are serious about Jesus. And again, we want to stand in solidarity with them. Well, as we return to Philippians 2, this is what we're encountering. We're encountering a great risk taker in the person of Epaphroditus. And so uh, we took a little hiatus last week. Uh, Many of you were gone, uh, but we looked at uh, that passage in Luke. This week, we're returning back to Epaphroditus, and we'll finish chapter 2. This message I've entitled, The Character of a Faithful Servant, and this is part two of those messages. But as we close chapter 2 here, In Philippians, it's like we're reading a missionary report. Paul is basically letting the church know how he's doing, and he's letting them know how he's doing in order to ease their hearts and to to settle them because they had great concern. And after Paul gave his plea of humble unity in chapter 1, verse 27 through 2, 4, he goes on to illustrate the perfect example of what a humble mindset looks like. And by way of example, he uses the Lord Jesus himself in verses 5 through 11. And as we study that, we're reminded that we won't find a more weighty, more theologically rich passage in the New Testament than the incarnation of Christ, the humiliation of Christ. And even though it is jam-packed with theology, Paul's point in using that is very, very practical. You say, Dom, does he want us to worship? Absolutely he does. But he wants that worship to be in step with Christ's humility and his self-sacrifice. And if you missed last week, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it because we did talk about the greatness of Christ, the uniqueness of Christ. In Luke 1, we, we celebrated Christmas as we recalled the angel Gabriel's announcement to Mary. And we looked at his identity, that his name is Jesus, Yahweh saves, Yeshua, his supremacy, that he would be great, his divinity, that he would be called the Son of the Most High God. We looked at his sovereignty, that he would have the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And we looked at his eternality, that this kingdom that he has established, this kingdom that he rules, will last forever and ever. There is no end. And walking away from last week, we say there is no one greater than Jesus. But again, we come back to Philippians 2, and Paul, again, he he lists out all these things in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, and we say, well... How am I ever going to follow in those footsteps? Because that's Jesus. That is the God-man. That is the perfect one. That is the Son of God, the only begotten of the Father. There is no way that I can live like him and think like him and act like him. And we talked about last week how oftentimes we think that's daunting. And it's true to a certain degree. You are not the Savior. You are not supreme. You are not divine. You are not sovereign. And you certainly did not come from everlasting to everlasting. And yet at the same time, Paul, I think, aware of this, says, okay, but you can look at me as an example. And you say, well, Paul, you're you're, you're the apostle Paul, who's greater than you on this earth? And he says, okay, well, you can look at Pastor Timothy. Well, Paul, still, you discipled him, and he was a godly man, and he wrote, I mean, you have a couple letters written to him. I can't follow in his footsteps. And he says, okay, well, what about Epaphroditus? And now what is your excuse? Because as far as we know, he's not an elder in the church. He's not even a deacon in the church. He's he's a layman. He's a member, just like many of you. But yet he is a man who sacrificed. He is a man who risked, risked it all for the cause and the sake of Christ. And so that's what Paul does. He provides three concrete examples, first himself in verses 17 through 18, how he poured himself out in service to the Philippian church. Then he provides Pastor Timothy in verses 19 through 24. And here again, we're looking at Epaphroditus now, just a regular, non-spectacular man in verses 25 through 30. And by highlighting these human examples, Paul is saying, look, you can have this mindset You can be humble like Christ. You can pour yourself out for the sake of others. 
This is the kind of attitude and these are the kind of actions that you, Christian, brother, sister, you are capable of. Now, just to catch us up to speed, especially for those who have been away for a little bit, according to chapter 4 in Philippians, Epaphroditus has been sent to Paul in Philippi. Why? Because the Philippian church heard that he was under house arrest in Rome. They heard that he was having an extremely difficult time, and their hearts go out to him. So they do two things. They get a collection. In a church gathering, they say, okay, our brother is in prison. He's unable to move. He's unable to minister the gospel out and about freely. So let's take an offering, a love offering, a gift offering. And so they do that. Well, now that they have the offering, but they can't take out their phone and just sell it to him real quickly, they actually have to get it. And they can't wire it and they can't send it through Wells Fargo. And so what do they have to do? They have to load up a guy with a suitcase. Well, they don't have suitcases, a satchel or whatever. And then they, and he's got to go. He's got to make that trip. He's got to travel to take that money to the Apostle Paul. And that is the Philippians' way of loving him and caring for him and supporting his ministry. So let's pick it up right there in verse 25, Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes this, But I regard it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who was also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I've sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to fulfill what was lacking in your service to me. Oh, Father, would you please be our help, our aid, our strength, our wisdom as we turn to your word. Speak to us through your spirit. Increase our faith. Increase our love and our passion for your word, for your son. Help us to be obedient to the things we learned this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our main idea, if you're taking notes this morning, is this. We, as believers, we should honor men and women like Epaphroditus, who follow in the example of Jesus' self-sacrificing service for the gospel and the church. Once again, we should honor men and women like Epaphroditus, who follow in the example of Jesus' self-sacrificing service for the gospel and for the church. The text is really easy to, to break up. It's five major ideas. First, in verse 25, we have the description of Epaphroditus' character, and we talked about that two weeks ago. We have that five-fold description there in verse 25 that he is your brother, or my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, and he is your messenger and your minister to my needs. This morning, we're looking at the next four ideas from the text, and it's outlined this way. After looking at his character, we have his concern in verse 26. After his concern, we have his cure in verses 27 through 28. Following that, in verse 29, we have his commendation. And then finally, we'll end our time looking at his commitment. So his concern, his cure, his commendation, and his commitment. Let's look there at point number one, his concern. Verse 25. But I regard it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Why did Paul feel the need to send this brother back to the church? Well, the reason is given with two very strong emotions. First there, look at the text. It says, he longed for you. This describes his deep affection for his home church. And we begin to get a glimpse of this guy's heart. But that verbal construction emphasizes a prolonged duration of intense desire that he was continually longing for the church. Literally, it says he was constantly longing for you. And it's the same kind of longing that it says in Philippians 1.8, Paul had. He says, for my God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So Epaphroditus is simply longing for the church the same way that Paul did and the same way that Paul modeled Christ in longing after the people of God. And what I find so fascinating as I was diving into commentaries this week is that some were suggesting that the reason that he was longing for them was because he was homesick. 
Many of you that have been away from home, been away from mom, dad, brother, sister, uh, familiarity, you begin to get homesick. And so some commentators make this big point that he just, he missed his family, he missed his friends, maybe missed the fireplace and the home-cooked chicken noodle soup, and he just wanted to go back home. But I'm not, uh, I'm not buying the homesick theory. Epaphroditus doesn't strike me as a soldier that would abandon his post. And that's not just a hunch about his character. In fact, I think we have something substantial here in the text itself. Look there at the second strong emotion, because it gives us a better clue. Paul says that secondly, he was distressed. That, that same word is used of Jesus in Gethsemane where his soul was distressed to the point, obviously, where he was sweating drops of blood. This distress is the kind of mental and emotional and spiritual anguish that we feel when we're just consumed about something. So the question is, well, why did he have this kind of emotional response? And I would argue that the reason has nothing to do with being homesick or wanting the cares and comforts of home. Look there again at the text. What did he long for? It says he was distressed because of you. Because you heard that I was sick. He longed for them. He, he's sick, but he's thinking about them. How, how not typical is that? When I'm sick, I'm like sounding the alarm. And I want my wife to come when I ring the bell. And, uh, babe, can you make some chicken soup and a bondigas soup? And can you bring me a heating blanket? And, and can you bring me some Robitussin and then some Advil and, and Moltrin? And, and can you go to the pharmacy? And can you call the doctor? And I just I want all the attention on me. I don't feel good, babe. I need, I need cuddles. I need hugs. Epaphroditus is not concerned about himself. He's not concerned about just going home because he misses home. It says here he's distressed for them. He's concerned about them. Now, look, we don't know how long he was sick. I, I assume that he was sick for several months. Now, we don't know if his sickness was an infection of some sort, if it was some sort of disease. We don't even know for certain if he got sick on the way down there or if he got sick once he got there or if he got sick after he was helping out Paul for a while. But what we do know from the text is that this was a debilitating sickness, even a deadly sickness. In fact, that word here for sick, it comes from the negative, the A word plus strength. It's awe strength, which literally means he was without strength. And just to give you an idea of how sick this brother is, it's the same word that's used of Lazarus when he was sick. And you say, well, how sick was he? Well, he died. That's how sick Lazarus was. We're not talking about some allergies or a runny nose. This guy is down for the count. I remember when we went to go visit uh, my, my brother-in-law and his wife in um, Colorado a couple Easter's ago. So excited, going on vacation, going to go hang out with the family, and we got the stomach flu. And it was miserable. I mean, all of us, the whole family, we were just down and out. And then to top that off, Judah started having problems with breathing. And it got really bad. And so we had to go to the hospital. And so we're at the hospital. We're all sick. We're not enjoying our vacation. But the beautiful thing is there was a hospital. And there were clinics. And there was medication. And you could call the pharmacy. Epaphroditus doesn't have any of those things. This guy is deathly sick. But I want you to notice that despite the sickness, he's still thinking about his home church and the people. And he's concerned about them. Now, you can imagine the congregation's concern as they get word that Epaphroditus is ill and ill to the point of death. Uh, I have to imagine that they were even tempted to think, like, do we, did we kill this guy? And we got him signed up and we got excited and we prayed over him and we sent him out. And now he's going to die. And now, the, I don't know if the pastor has to look at the wife and I'm so sorry, and the kids, and I'm so sorry. Again, that's speculation, but as you can imagine, there must have been a temptation to feel like, did we make a mistake? Was this a bad idea, sending this brother, and now he's sick? Well, word somehow came back to Paul and Epaphroditus that the Philippians heard that he was ill and that they were concerned. 
And they can't be, you know, they can't text message or phone call and let them know, hey, everything's okay. They're feeling better. He's feeling better. No, <laughs> the news has to wait a couple of months to travel all the way back to Philippi so that they would know and they would be assured that he actually is better. But here's Epaphroditus. He's away from home. He's away from his family. But he persists in spite of this sickness. His attitude is, look, I have a job to do. The church has sent me. God has commissioned me. And I'm going to finish that job. He's devoted. He's dedicated. The cause of Christ became more important even than his own health. Now, I'm sure he probably would have been tempted to go back if he was sick on the way. The voices in the head, this is a bad decision. What are you doing? You're jeopardizing your health. You shouldn't keep going. You won't make this journey. So he could have easily just turned around. He didn't do that. The long journey, you know, that wasn't easy. There were inconveniences. There were challenges. There were expenses. But look, honestly, that's how ministry is. Ministry is difficult. And I'm not just talking about what Nick and I do, ministry. I'm talking about what the Bible says that all of us do as Christians. Ministry, serving one another, loving one another, sacrificing for each other. That is not easy. It is difficult. It is time intensive. It costs you something. But again, as the costs are adding up and adding up and he's sick and he's on his deathbed, He's concerned that they're concerned for him. He's distressed that they're distressed. He's like that brother or sister that's lying in the hospital bed, and you're asking them how they're doing, and they just keep asking about other people. They want to make sure other people are okay. Now, I had an opportunity to visit a brother in the hospital not too long ago, and uh, it almost broke my heart because the concern was just other people. It wasn't how uncomfortable he was, it wasn't how difficult things have been. It was just other people, his love for other people, his desire to see other people grow in Christ. That's Epaphroditus right here. He is concerned about others. Well, let's get back to the text. Would Epaphroditus' sickness lead to death? It was looking very likely, but Paul tells us how God intervened. Look there at Philippians chapter 2, verse 27. Paul writes this, but God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. And here's point number two, his cure. That statement there that God had mercy reveals the fact that God is the one that graciously cured him. This was God's doing. He had done the healing. Now, note that the text doesn't say how God healed him, whether it was some sort of miracle or whether there was uh, some laying on of hands or a prayer meeting or medical treatment or a combination of all those things. But some assume, and wrongly I think, that Paul used his superpower gift of healing. And that is how Epaphroditus was healed. But I don't think that's the case. And you say, Don, why, why would you say that? Well, because Paul intentionally places the attention on God. He is the one that extended mercy. But it does raise the question about healing. Earlier in Paul's ministry, he healed people. In fact, in Acts chapter 19, we read this. This is spectacular. It says there in verse 11, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that claws or handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. And you say, that is spectacular, and that is the way it has always been, and that's the way that it continues to be. However, in this particular text, there's no indication that Paul utilized this gift of healing. And he didn't send Epaphroditus to a healing service. He didn't have someone do some kind of hocus-pocus and hit him on the forehead with some holy water and say, you're healed. In fact, it's very likely that the miraculous gift of healing was no longer necessary to affirm Paul's apostolic authority. H.A. Ironside wrote about this passage, and he said this. He said, Let it be noted that the apostle did not consider he had any rights to demand physical healing, even for so faithful a laborer as Epaphroditus. 
Paul recognized it as simply the mercy of God, not as that to which the saints have a right. He says, this is true divine healing. And let it be remembered that sickness, listen to this, that sickness may be as really from God as health. It is clear that Paul never held or taught healing in the atonement and therefore the birthright privilege of all Christians. Some of, uh, some of us, some of you, come from very uh, Pentecostal, charismatic churches, faith-healing churches. And I just have a word to faith healers who claim to possess this gift of healing. We talked about this last night. How come they don't show up in the hospitals? How can we still have issues with COVID if people have this gift to go and just heal people at will? The so-called miracle workers who claim that you need faith to move mountains. What do you do with the Apostle Paul, who is one of the godliest men, who has faith? I mean, if anyone's going to move a mountain with his faith, it's going to be the Apostle Paul. And yet, what do we see here? He is not healing Epaphroditus. If Paul was able to heal him at will, then he would have laid his hands on this brother, and he would have been the one that healed him. And the same thing is true for Timothy which the scriptures say he had stomach issues. Well, he would not have stomach issues if Paul could just lay his hands on him and heal him immediately. The same thing is true of Trophimus in 2 Timothy 4.20. Paul not only said that he was sick, but he actually left him sick in Miletus. And the same thing is true of Paul himself. It wasn't just Timothy, it wasn't just Epaphroditus, it wasn't just Trophimus, but it was the Apostle Paul himself who, you remember, said he has a thorn in the flesh. He's troubled by this thing, night and day. We don't know exactly what that was. Some say it was his eyesight. Some say it was some other physical ailment. But whatever it was, it was causing Paul great distress. And do you remember God's revelation to the Apostle Paul? God said to him, my grace is what? Sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. And what was Paul's response to that? He didn't grumble, but he gloried in it. He gloried even in his sickness and the debilitation. You see, sometimes we pray with great faith that God would heal, and he does, but sometimes he doesn't. And sometimes we pray lacking faith, but God still heals, and sometimes he doesn't. I will tell you right now what guarantees God's healing. It's not your faith. It's not your lack of faith. It is God's sovereign will. Now, that's not to say that you don't have strong faith. We must. That's not to say that we shouldn't pray for God's healing because we should. It's just to say this, that ultimately God's healing is dependent on his own sovereign will. We know God still heals and wants to heal because he is a God of mercy. And over and over in the scriptures, we see this. People coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, have mercy on me. We see that with Jesus healing the demoniac. And after he healed him in Mark 5, he said, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you, that he has had mercy on you. We see the same thing with the blind men in Matthew chapter 9, crying out, have mercy on us, son of David. The Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. The father pleading for his son, Lord, have mercy on my son. Two more blind men in Matthew 20. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Aren't you so thankful that our God is a God of mercy? And if he chooses, if it is his will, he'll heal. He'll heal you. He'll heal mom. He'll heal dad. He'll heal grandma. He'll heal grandpa. He'll heal child, grandchild. But ultimately, it's up to God. Now, look back there at the next phrase. Paul uses this here. He says, God had mercy on him, but not on him only, but also on me. You see what's going on here? God has extended physical mercy, physical healing on Epaphroditus, but emotional mercy on Paul. The healing was actually done for both of their benefits. And Paul gives the reason why it benefited him. He says this, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. 
Well, what does Paul mean, sorrow upon sorrow? Well, this is just double grief. It's compiled grief, compiled sorrow. The sorrow of losing his close brother in the Lord would have been devastating to him. Now, he doesn't have a whole lot of people with him. There's Timothy, there's Epaphroditus, there's not many others. And to lose this brother would just be so hard. But it would have been extra bitter knowing that the Philippians would be brokenhearted as well. Add to that the sorrow piled upon him that he was already experiencing. He's in prison. He's not able to move around freely and to evangelize and to establish churches and to build up the body of Christ. But the scriptures say that God even spared Paul, spared him the pain and the grief if Epaphroditus were to die, and so he was healed. And so just by way of application, church, I think we need to be reminded of this, that following Jesus doesn't mean that you're going to be spared from sorrow. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you are not going to experience difficulty and sickness and disappointment. But it does mean that by God's grace, we have the ability to rejoice when we experience those things. That God comes to you in his sweet and even bitter providence in ways that you can never imagine and reminds you of his love for you and his care for you. That is a guarantee. It's ironclad from the scripture. God is a merciful God, and he oftentimes will deliver us from sorrow upon sorrow. Well, now that Epaphroditus is healed, he's restored back to health, Paul decides to send him back to his home church. Look there at verse 28. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice. And he says, I may be less concerned about you. And this reunion, this sweet reunion of him going back to his home church accomplishes two things. First, the church would rejoice at his coming. Right? The last that they heard, he was deathly ill. They probably feared that they would never see him again. And what happens? Knock, knock. There he is. Ta-da, look, here I am. He's cured, and he's also carrying the inspired word of God to the Philippians. And so obviously, this would have been a, a cause for huge celebration. They would have rejoiced greatly that their brother is alive, and Paul is doing well, and they have the word of God. But second, Paul says here he would be less concerned. Now notice that. Pay attention. It doesn't say that he would have no concern. It says he would have less concern. And that right there is the heart of a pastor. His mind will be put at ease knowing that there's a sweet reunion, that Epaphroditus doesn't have to worry anymore, the Philippians don't have to worry anymore. That's all good. He's home, he's safe, he's healthy. But watch this. Paul's main concern is not health and safety protocols. He wasn't callous about their health. He just had a greater concern than their physical health. What he's more concerned about, church, is their spiritual health. That's his main concern. And he'll continue to be concerned until he hears a report back that they're walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. That there is no more division and divisiveness and biting and grumbling and bickering, but instead, they're loving one another. They're serving each other. They're putting each other's needs before their own. And so until then, he says, I will still have concern, but I'll have less concern because I know he's safe and he's home. It's a good lesson for us. It's a reminder. Because we know this, that the reason that Paul is primarily concerned about their spiritual well-being and their spiritual happiness is that sickness will come, sadness will come, but he knows, Paul knows, that their spiritual health, their holiness, their joy, their unity is infinitely more important and sends a bigger message to a watching world than when everything is going great. When you're perfectly healthy, there's no troubles going on in your life. Where's the testing in that? How does God show himself to be great when everything is just smooth sailing? You see, sickness could have very well been part of God's will. That is true. My father-in-law, he's at home right now. 
You might have COVID. We don't know. Some people get COVID. They go down really bad. Other people don't. It's really hard to tell. But every single sickness is not outside of God's will. He is sovereign over that. But you know what? You know what God doesn't will for you? Sin. The sin of division, selfishness, disharmony, that is definitely not a part of his desire for our lives. His will is holiness. And that is why Paul can only be less concerned. He'll still be concerned if they reject God's holy desire for their life. Well, we observe Paul's description of Epaphroditus' concern in verse 25, his cure there in verses 26 and 27. Now we come to the third unit of thought in the text. It's Paul's commendation of Epaphroditus. Look at verse 29. Paul concludes this discussion here about his illness and return home with a double exhortation. And here's the commendation. 29, he uh, receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard. Paul gives two commands, just real simple. Receive and honor people like him. First, they're to receive him or, or welcome him. This first command to receive, it includes two phrases. It says there that they are to do it in the Lord and with all joy. And we say that's fine and dandy. That's the Christian life. We're to do all things in the Lord and we're to do things with joy. But the question is, why would Paul have to state the obvious? Wouldn't they naturally receive him in the Lord and with joy? Well, I think as Epaphroditus makes this return home, remember that it's an early return home, it probably raised a bunch of questions. Yes, they were happy to see him. Yes, they were thankful he was alive. But the question remains, did he actually fulfill the mission that we sent him out to do? Is Epaphroditus a failure because he got sick? Is he a little baby because he wants to come home? Now, Remarkably, there are some commentators who think that. That he didn't fulfill his mission, that he chickened out, that he just wanted to go back. I even heard one guy preaching and he said that Paul has grown in his understanding of people who are weak-minded, like Mark, who at one time, he, he didn't want to go. And so when Barnabas at one point says, hey, let's take Mark with us, Paul said, no, we're not going to take him. He deserted us. And so now Paul has matured and, and is, is maybe okay with people who desert him. And that's what they're saying here. I don't think that is the case whatsoever. But that's how the argument goes. The Philippian church set aside Epaphroditus to serve alongside Paul, and it was supposed to be for the long term. They committed financial means to support Paul's ministry and also to support Epaphroditus. But due to his illness or to his ineffectiveness, he didn't fulfill his mission how do we know that that is not the case? Well, because the text tells us here. Paul sincerely praises this brother and holds him in high regard and expects and anticipates and even commands that the church do the same thing. Look there at the second command. He says, hold him in high regard. That expression there in high regard, it just literally means in honor. Show this man honor. Give him the honor that he deserves. You know, giving honor, receiving honor, it was the norm in that culture. Remember, it's a big military community. Uh, we're, we're even here used to that. We know what a medal of honor is. We know what the honor role is. We, we understand that in the secular world. But for some reason, that doesn't quite translate in the church. It's almost like we don't honor one another because, well, I don't want to make too much of you. I don't want to puff you up. I don't want you to get a big head. And so there's almost a fear to, to not show honor to people. But Paul's command is very clear. It, we're to show honor to whom honor is due. In fact, the very first commandment with a promise has to do with honor. What is it? Honor your father and mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. How about this? Honor your spouses. 1 Peter 3, 7. You, husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way and show her honor as a fellow heir 
of the grace of life. And he even says, he attaches this to it, so that your prayers would not be hindered. Our parents deserve honor. Our spouses, especially our wives, deserve honor. And by extension, anyone really who has sacrificed for you, loved you, cared for you, ministered to you, supported you, they deserve honor. Paul wants the Philippian church to esteem highly all of those who are serving in the church like Epaphroditus and to do so publicly. And I guess I started to write a whole list of all of our members. I am thankful for Pastor Nick for his labor of love, not getting paid to do ministry, but serving night and day, ministering, loving, counseling, teaching, all the things that Pastor Nick does, I'm thankful for. But it's not just him, it's our deacons, it's our children's ministry workers, as all week you know that people scramble in to try to fill spots and it somehow comes together, but people are laying down their lives to serve our children, that is a blessing to me, to our church, our sound team, our media team, our ushers, our greeters, our hospitality team, the guys who hook it up at the barbecue, I love that, the ladies who organize women's events, all those who serve during work days, and a million other things that go on in our church that people might not see, but God does. We are to pay honor to whom honor is due. That doesn't necessarily mean that we bring him up here every week, but for you, that's a command for you. That you can go to someone and say, I just really appreciate you. I'm so thankful for you. The Lord has used you significantly in my life. I, I messaged Brother Rob, so encouraged. Um, my kids came home and they said, Rob, Rob is such a great teacher. And they're breaking down the whole lesson for me. And I'm sitting and I'm listening. I'm like learning. And so I just sent him a text message. Just to let him know, Brother, you are blessing the socks off of my kids. Thank you for your faithful ministry. We need to be in the habit of honoring people, loving them, communicating to them our thankfulness and our gratitude for their work and labor of love. Well, finally, we get to his reason behind this commendation, and he introduces three of them with a clausal conjunction because, look there in the text, why should we hold people like this in high regard? Three reasons are listed, all of them centering on faithful commitment. And point number four, his commitment, verse 30. Because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to fulfill what was lacking in your service to me. Reason number one why we honor people is because their work for Christ. And you say, well, what does this mean, work for Christ? Well, the work became a technical term, much like calling Christianity the way or calling Jesus the name. The work signified the cause of Christ. The work of Christ is what is done to advance the gospel, to make much of Jesus. Like our mission statement says, magnifying the Lord Jesus. We are doing the work of Christ. The second reason is that it says in the text, he did not regard his life. And you think about this, just as Christ and his obedience went to the cross, Epaphroditus was fully committed to taking up his own cross. Remember, we talked about how much easier it is to just lay your life down once and for all, one-time events, how much harder is it to do it every single day? He did not regard his life. He was willing to give up his life for the interest and the concern of others. But the third reason there, it says in the text, he risked his life. The participle there, risking, it only occurs here in the New Testament, is an is a interesting word. Actually, the only time, or the first time, I should say, that it appears in Greek literature and the Greek scholar A.T. Robertson points out that this is a gambling word. It means to gamble one's life, to chance everything. So this brother, Epaphroditus, he courageously, not recklessly, but he courageously staked his life for the ministry of Christ. He was a risk taker. And the thing he risked was his very own life. And he risked that in more ways than one, because think back with me. Initially, when he heard about this opportunity, he risked it to say, hey, I'll make this long, arduous trip, and I'll travel all these miles and all these hours to go to a man who, if I associate with, I can probably have my head chopped off. But I'll do that because 
It's for Christ. It's for the gospel. It's for the advancement of the kingdom. I'll, I'll do it. It's also worth noting that even though he was sick, he was determined to fill his mission. It's not him that wanted to come back necessarily, but it was Paul that sent him back. Now let me just balance this whole risk thing and gambling thing with a little bit of reality because I don't think Paul, or the Lord for that matter, is calling everyone to just thoughtlessly, foolishly make our own martyrdom arrangements. Okay, that, that is not what the text is teaching here. I'm fully aware that discipleship requires us to pick up our cross and to, to bear it daily, but I don't think it is right for us to equate near-death experiences or the extravagant with faithfulness. I know missionaries that have actually come back from the mission field. And people begin to ask questions. Well, they couldn't hang. They missed America too much. They missed the supermarket and the conveniences. And I don't necessarily think that's the case. I think there might be good wisdom to come back home. I know missionaries that came back home because their kids were sick. And this was the only place where they can care for their kids. I think their kids are their ministry. And so that was a wise decision. And you'll hear stories like that over and over again. It doesn't make people chickens or cowards. I think the key here is just being really in tune with God's will. Being so close to God, so near to God's heart that we're listening. So that God shakes things up and things happen. You might have to take a step back from ministry, but you might have to take a step forward. It is being in touch with God's will for our life. So let me ask you this. Are you trusting in God's sovereignty and his providence for you? Are you being flexible enough not to insist on your own way, not to insist on your own plans, your own timetable? The truth is that God might be redirecting you. He might be rerouting you. He might be pit-stopping you. He might be putting a new pin on the map for you to go. We must, church, be open to God's direction in our life and redirection and not cling so tightly to what's comfortable. And I think that's the other challenging thing because A.T. Robertson also said this. He said, it is possible to be too careful of one's life at the cost of real usefulness. See, I think we tend to gravitate toward, it's too hard, it's too risky, it's going to take too much. People might think of me strangely, think of me differently. So rather than speaking up, I won't. Rather than going, I won't. Rather than giving, I can't. And we begin to make all these excuses. Look, as Christians, I think we'd be willing to lay our life down for Christ. But you know, just as well as I do, that it's not so much the words or even the willingness to do that. What makes that worthy is the actions that accompany the, the willingness, the actually doing it in faith, trusting the Lord, and leaving it in his hands. Church, do you find this kind of risk-taking that Epaphroditus embarked on is that inspirational to you or is that just insane? What are you thinking when you hear about this guy's story and his ministry? These selfless acts of pouring himself out on the behalf of the saints. Parents, I would encourage you to have your children read biographies. We, we do this frequently. We watch something called Torchlighters. And you go and you ask my kids about Corey Ten Bloom or Adoniram and Ann Judson. You ask them about William Tyndale and John Bunyan. Uh, we want to expose our kids to the great men and women of the faith who risk it all for the Lord. In a lot of ways, the only reason why we're here and we're meeting and we're gathering and we have the Bible is because men and women risk themselves for the cause of Christ. I think about the Stepanians. Many of you know them. We love them. They are giving of themselves on the mission field. They're serving faithfully in Uganda. What's to say that can't be you? What if God is moving you? 
What if God is maybe nudging you and initiating something in your own heart right now? I'm not saying you got to get on a plane tomorrow. I'm not saying that you got to give everything up. But be willing. Be praying. Maybe God wants to use you in ministry here on the peninsula to serve in a greater capacity. I know one thing's for certain. He doesn't want you on the sidelines. He doesn't want you wasting your life, but using it for his glory. Well, as we come to a close, let me just ask you again. Brother, sister, are you taking risk for the advancement of the gospel? Only you can answer that. Are you putting yourself out there to make much of Christ? One of the best ways that you can answer that faithfully is just look at your last week. Look at your last month. Look at 2021. Are you too comfortable, too satisfied, too secure to sacrifice for the spiritual good of others? Now, let me just say this because it needs to be said. 2022, we can say, I just got to do better. I just got to, I got to get with it. I got to discipline myself. I got to fix things. I got to serve more. The pastor told me I got to, I got to do these things. And I just want to remind you that everything that these three brothers did, Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus is all linked to their view of Christ. They're not doing it for the reputation. They're not doing it to please anybody other than Jesus himself. So I can't tell you what to do. I'm not going to force you to do anything. But think and pray about how you can serve the Lord more faithfully in 2022. Think how you can use your gifts and your talents and your skills and your areas of influence to make much of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we understand that in order to fulfill our mission statement, to do that individually, to do that collectively, if we're going to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ, if we're going to minister to the church, if we're going to multiply your disciples, God, we're going to need to be risk takers. We're going to need to have the same kind of humility and love and sacrifice we see first in Christ and then echoed in these three brothers that we've been studying the last couple of weeks. Father, we realize that every time we do ministry, every time we minister to someone in need, there's something that we are risking. We might risk being taken advantage of. We might risk being misunderstood. Or we might risk being ostracized. In fact, Lord, there is no ministry without some sort of risk, either great or small. But Lord, we don't want to live in this life comfortably and complacent and carefree. We don't want to act like we have control of our lives, of how long we'll live. We want to offer our lives as a living sacrifice to you to do with as you please. And so please, Father, help us. Make us willing. Make us risk takers to be wise, to be discerning, to be prayerful, but to be risk takers for the cause of Christ. Help us like Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus be willing to regard one another's needs as more important than ourselves. Be willing to die, if need be, for the cause of Christ. Help us, Lord, to follow, follow in their example and to love you with all of our heart. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.